0: I'll go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and we'll, we'll jump back into Genesis. Lord, we just thank you that we can come this morning, that you have put off any major snow till tomorrow, to allow us to meet and gather, and, and for me especially, having been gone the last couple weeks, Lord, it's just so good to be back with your people, learning from your word. I pray that your spirit would use this time uh, to encourage all our hearts, and uh, that it would do so through your people, and again, through your word. It's in your son's name we pray these things. Amen. So, back when the pandemic started, um, they shut off procedures at the hospital. And so, I spent about two to three months without doing the procedure that I normally do, Um some of you know what that is, um, but the, the important thing was is that that meant that uh, doing the procedure again isn't a problem, it's the computer. So those of you who deal with the IT world, um, I click a lot of buttons throughout my day and going back and trying to remember, normally I just do it without thinking and it's just in a specific order and I just hit the buttons and, and I actually have a pattern on the screen that I follow and it makes the report print out exactly how I like it. And it took me about two days of doing this when I came back to try and get my mind back in line so I could do it just by by practice rather than by actually thinking about what I was doing. And so uh, I just want to take some time now to go that it kind of (laughs) is how we do patient care. So last year I got to have a cataract done and I asked the, the doctor how long it'd take and he said eight minutes. And I said, well, have you ever shot for six? Because I think that'd be really cool to set a record. And he, he's like, and he's really serious. He's just like, yeah, I just, I don't even really think about it when I'm in there doing it. I just do it. And uh, so, yeah, it doesn't go any faster or slower. And you don't want me to be thinking while I'm in there. <laughs> I was like, well, Okay. Um, he did a great, great job, Dr. Feldmeyer. Um, did a great job, and uh, I, I kind of got that as a, as a physician. I don't know if he would have told another patient what he told me, but um, I was okay with him just not even thinking he did a great job. Um, but I do want to take some time now just to, to review, because the other issue here is, is that we've covered the first 2,000 years gets you up to the flood, and now we've gone from the flood very quickly up to Abram is going to be introduced. And so it seemed like a good opportunity to review where we've come so far. And also for you as individuals to say, well, what what does Genesis teach me about the world I live in? Whether you're a student or whether you work on an assembly line or whether you're an IT person or whether uh, you sell insurance, Um, whether you're a physician, those of you who are moms, those of you who are dads, kids, all of us can can garner something about this world we live in through Genesis. In fact, I would argue that you hear that term, uh, um, a biblical worldview, and I heard it for years before I really understood what in the world it was talking about and could really define it well, but if you could define the world we live in through one section of the Bible, it would probably be in the first 10 chapters of Genesis. So as we run through these things, I just want you to kind of think about the situation you're in and how it applies to what you see the world around you doing. So back in Genesis 1, we have God setting in motion the role and every part of creation. Everything that happens in creation is set up by God to run the way it runs. This includes days, seasons, the fact that that a plant reproduces another plant just like it, and you can cross-pollinate and do all these things to produce these combinations. But ultimately, it goes back to the genetics that were set up, all the way from plants and protozoa, little single-cell organisms, all the way up to mankind. Um, And to accomplish that, he, he assigns gender and Uh, We saw male and female established immediately as part of this procreation. Again, thinking about the world we live in, uh, it isn't just an option here. It's how the world was actually made. And then when we see in uh, Genesis 1 through 3, this role, roles are specifically given to men and women. As God interacts with man, men and women are given specific jobs, specific roles that they are to follow, not only in dealing with one another, but also in, in dealing with creation itself. Man is, himself is given the role of actually being a worker, man being, being human. I'll try, to, I'll try to make sure I don't interject that, not because if I say human instead of mankind or man, I'm not like bowing to the pressures to get rid of these terms, but just so you understand, uh, because I do want to make it clear that man is given a certain role and woman is given a certain role, and I want to use the term to include all of them, something other than just mankind. So humans are given specific roles to follow. Humans are given the role of ruling over creation. Everything was under God's sovereign control, and part of that is he assigns men, assigns humans to rule over the creation that they live in. Humans are given the role of caretaker, they're given the role of ruler of the earth, and they're also uh, told to fill the earth, so not only at the beginning of Genesis, but we see that immediately following the flood. And these humans, he gives their, this relationship with each other. It's not good for man to be alone, and it's not good for human beings not to have a social interaction with one another. And so we're social beings, not just for the act of procreation, but also we start to see the importance of family, the role of parents and their children, as we see that start to grow more and more and, and culminate in, that, uh, in actually a bad event that we see between Noah and his children, specifically Ham, and what that brings about we see a marriage relationship start and we saw again not necessarily a good picture of what marriage is supposed to be like in the fall of man between adam and eve between man and woman in that relationship and the 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 Thing we should take away from that isn't that boy men are screwed up and women are screwed up and we just can't live well together it's think if it had gone correctly and if Eve had been tempted and instead encouraged her husband and said hey I was tempted and this was terrible and Adam says yeah we were told not to do it let's stay away and they encourage one another and support one another in their service to God and following his plan but instead we see God's role for marriage fall apart even there <clears throat> so that support for each other that we're supposed to have that's there. Then we are introduced to this creature, the serpent, uh, Satan. In fact, we see the role of demons even later. We talked about a little bit as, the, as we lead up to the flood and the fall of man. And uh, Satan, as he's introduced, is shown basically to be a liar, but not a, not a liar that's easy to spot. He's this very subtle liar. He's very careful about what he says so that he isn't found out And his role, it seems to be thus far, is to take man and use man to attack God. Ultimately, Satan is not after us. That would elevate us, I think, to the level of God. I think Satan is showing that he's using man to attack the God that cast him out for his pride. And his tool is a lie. His tool is continually to use lies. In fact, we learn later in the Bible that Satan stands before God lying about us by using half truths about our own sin, ignoring the fact that those of us who are in Christ have a standing before God. So we're seeing that already playing a part here. Certainly, we have in in our today's in today's society uh, the the gender issues are, are obvious that that humans have decided they have an issue with gender. But we also see this whole idea about lies and what can we trust and what can we know and what's true and what's not and what's fake and what's real. And we're seeing that even play out here in Genesis. Satan uses lies to bring jealousy, hate, and eventually murder uh, the first two brothers. Again, a relationship that should have been strong. We're going to see that later in Genesis when we get to Joseph and his brothers, the way the relationship is supposed to work when we see that relationships restored by Joseph in the end, but initially that, uh, that relationship falls apart and it all falls, falls apart when they all determine they're going to lie to their father. And then, relationship between God, and, well, not totally implied, but we see this relationship between God and Satan, finally, as far as relationships go through this first section. And we see that Satan is not a co-equal of God. Satan does not have the same authority God does. God has not turned Satan loose and say, okay, I'm going to tie my hands behind my back so that you and I battle this out on on the earth. And boy, I hope God can pull this out against Satan who's just as strong as he is. Um, So they're not co-equals, they're in opposition. Satan's true enemy is God. And he will ultimately be defeated, as we learned back in Genesis 3. Though it appears he's going to win battles along the way, but none of it is outside of God's sovereignty. You should take that away from Genesis 3 when we we read about the fall. So those are all the relationships between God, creation, humans, Satan, and how all of those different characters interact, not just in the first 10 chapters of Genesis, But in your own life now, in your life today, that is how God has set up this world and how it is working as we're moving forward. Then we came to the flood in Genesis 6, 7, and 8. All creation is judged. It gets so bad, God says, done, we're finished. And he judges all of creation. Not just specific groups or specific cities, uh, when we studied Amos this summer, it talks about, does calamity come upon a city and does God, is God not the cause of it? I think that's a great thing to bear in mind whenever you see terrible things happening around the world. Not to stand in judgment of parts of the world, but maybe to stand in awe of the fact that God hasn't judged us more severely here. As we look at 2020 and we've come out of that, just understanding that God does, a calamity has come upon our land it would be foolish not to think that God is not behind such things. He judges. But this, was a, this flood was an all creation judge. And the best way to put it, or the best way to look at it is to look at the literal explanation of what happened in everything above the mountaintops covered by water. It is all enveloped in the water. It is all submerged. It is all immersed in the judgment of God. It covered everything, that judgment at that time. It was a very bleak and dark moment. So bleak, in fact, that there's going to be a shift as we start to, to notice, as we look at the uh, today's text in, in Genesis 11, we're going to get to a uh, genealogy. And the thing that's going to stand out is, you remember in the first genealogy that was given, as we're listing the different men, it talks about he Beget him, and then he lived a certain number of years, and then how did it end and he died and now we 're going to see in in Genesis eleven that Andy died is dropped off it 's like wait a second, should we be hopeful? Is there something coming what 's going on and so we 'll we 'll get to that but before the flood, as we list through the lands, it's Andy died, Andy, or list through the, the, the people, it's Andy died, Andy died, Andy died. Life after the flood, we still see that man is evil. Certainly, Noah and, and, uh, and Ham demonstrate that for us. God immediately curses a line of people in the line of Canaan, the son of Ham, He selects out a specific line that's going to carry that curse. But we also see that he's starting to to move along a certain line towards a Savior. A genealogy that isn't emphasized by death. All those genealogy, the genealogy before Noah comes to Noah and everyone behind him, it's emphasized by death. After Noah, we, we have a line selected that's emphasized by life. But we would be foolish to believe that this line is selected because these are the great men, that God looked at the heart of these men and said, you guys are awesome, I pick you. Just like you can't look at yourself and say, I am awesome, God picked me. As we look at Abram, we're going to show that Abram is not an awesome person. Abram is not somebody who say, well, there is the man that I would have chosen to be the father of God's people and from him should come Christ. Because boy, he's got great character. It's not it at all. We're going to see that. Man is still evil. God is going to select a line to do what he purposes in his own heart. In Genesis up to this point, you'd be remiss to say, well, There's nothing in here about Christ. There's nothing in here about our salvation. There's nothing in here about what we would need to be saved. Certainly the gospel is necessary in knowing that Christ came, lived, and died on the cross for your sins. Without him, you cannot know peace. You cannot know God. You cannot earn eternal life on your own. It's only through faith in Christ. Salvation is by faith alone. But there are some major landmarks of what we would claim is necessary for an understanding of salvation at this part. And there's also understanding we're going to fight. Even even Abraham, in offering his son Isaac, we're going to find out he did that with the faith that God could raise him from the dead. We're going to see, we won't get to it, but but Moses himself is looking forward to to Christ and is willing to take on the reproach of the people of Egypt in order to pursue that. So there was a great understanding here, and I think there are some big understandings. We've covered some of the worldview understandings, and now we want to just look at what have we learned so far about the character of salvation in these first 10 chapters of Genesis. I would say, first of all, that man is, will be as bad as he is allowed by God to be. Without the judgment of God, man runs off and does and accomplishes anything he puts his mind to. And that is not good. We saw that in Babel. Man has a desire to do terrible things if you turn his heart loose and let him go on his own way. We, saw, we see that, if you recall, if, uh, thinking of the judges at the, in the time of Israel, before they had kings, everyone doing what is right in their own eyes, and what a disaster that is. So man will be as bad as he's allowed to be, and judgment is deserved by all. So what hope do we have? Well, the only hope we have is if God is gracious to us, correct? Genesis thus far has taught us that we are bad as people, and we need the grace of God as we see that that foreshadowing of what is going to happen where the serpent will get crushed in in chapter 3, we see that there is grace coming. So we're bad and we need grace. We also see that faith is demonstrated not in pursuing God irrationally, but faith is demonstrated in behavior. And it is evidence of the right relationship of God with God. So whether it's Noah who trusts God and builds an ark, you don't separate faith and activity. You don't separate the faith of Noah from the action that Noah had. You don't separate the faith of of Abel from the action where he offers the better sacrifice. And I love that story because clearly there's there's indication there that God had set up something we don't know about, some sort of sacrificial system that Abel was being faithful to. But we look in Hebrews, and Hebrews tells us about the faithfulness of Abel in doing so. So we found that that the only way we can be saved is by grace and that, that there must be faith. Even Adam and Eve doubted God in the fall. The the fall doesn't take place if they have faith. They lacked faith. They trusted in their own understanding of things as misled by the devil. Then again, in chapter 3, we see that God plans a seed, not a system. God doesn't give man. He doesn't say, well, now that you've fallen, here is the system that I'm going to use to help bring you back to me. He promises a seed. He promises an emphasis on a line that eventually crushed the serpent's head. They're looking forward to that line. The name of Cain and the name of Noah both point to hoping for a reversal of this curse that's coming in the future. A future where creation is restored to its fullness, man is reconciled to God. Mankind enjoys the fullness of this creation that God has made Man is reconciled to one another in personal and family and community relationships. And Satan is crushed by man, by a man, and by God. That's what they're looking for. That's all in the first 10 chapters of Genesis. And then we have that God's word is adequate and the only way to reconcile to him in his way or the only way to be reconciled to God is through what he tells us. The only way for them to know what are we supposed to do is to listen to the word of God and do it. Adam and Eve again, if they just would have done exactly what God had said, if they would have listened to his words and and displayed the faith. But God is already communicating with man and that communication trumps every other communication. It's Better than the lies of the devil. It's better than the understanding that men have with one another. We see that in the Tower of Babel, as man says, "Let us build a tower. Let us do it. We can figure this out. Let's put together our own system." So we see that that the Word of God is incredibly important. And finally, ultimately, we see that this whole thing—that maybe it's a little bit hidden—but this whole thing—I I, I don't think it is, but is all about God. We weren't around when this whole thing got started. God says, let us create the world. Let us make man. Let us build this. Let us do that. Let us plan this. Now let's judge. This is all about God. God is ultimately the one who's in control. This is ultimately all being done for God's glory. It's the only way any of this makes sense. Otherwise, this is all futility. How could something? How could God make this whole planet... And declare everything on it good and then have it fall so far to the point where he envelops it all in judgment in the flood. If it is not for his own glory, because it certainly isn't for ours. Mankind is not the one being glorified here. The earth, the creation is not the one being glorified here. It's been put into subjection below man. Satan himself has been put in subjection below God and will eventually be crushed. It's not for them. It must be for God. And that's really important because God kills a lot of people. God curses people so far. There's a lot of terrible things that have happened and they're going to keep happening. It must be. We pray it is for God's own glory. So if you're following along, there's five things about the character of salvation in Genesis that I covered. One, it's by faith or it's by grace. It's through faith and it's in Christ alone. And the only source we have is in scripture alone. And it's all to God's glory alone. Right? And that's all in there. It's kind of crazy that that is in place in the first 10 chapters of the Bible. So as we turn, let's go to Genesis 11. That's kind of for review. And let's look at uh, verse 10 through 26. And this is the... uh, Descendants of Shem. These are the records of the generations of Shem. Again, one of Noah's sons. Shem was, one of, was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachshad two years after the flood. Do you want to hit the slide? I think. There we go. You guys have seen this slide before. Ethan's going to come up and run through this for us. I'm going to just read through these. Um, and became the father of Arpachshad 2 years after the flood and Shem lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachshad and he had other sons and daughters Arpachshad lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah and Arpachshad lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah and he had other sons and daughters notice they're not dying they are but it's not it's not emphasized here Shelah lived 30 years and became the father of Eber and Shelah lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber and He had other sons and daughters. Again, Eber is where we get the the word Hebrew. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru, and Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru, and he had other sons and daughters. Peleg, we believe, was born about the time of the Tower of Babel because he was born at the division of the nations. <clears throat> Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Surig. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Surig. And he had other sons and daughters. Surig lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Surig lived 200 years. And after he became the father of Nahor, he had other sons and daughters. And Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years. And he became the father of Terah. And he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. All right. So we have Peleg through Abram. Ethan, do you want to come up? I'm going to steal. Ethan made my slides for me today and have to to help me and have to help you guys see what's going on. So anything you want to note on that?
1: Like so? Oh, wow. Oh, oh no. <laughs> I have power now. Um, so, yes, AGF is after the Great Flood. BGF is before the Great Flood, because that's kind of the big event that we know. This is um, probably where they would have been kind of keeping track from. And then parentheses is how old they were. Yes, parentheses is how old they are when they died. So if we see from Peleg gone down, they're only living about 200 years. So their lives go from 800 years old to within about six generations there. They're now only living a quarter of that. They're now only able to have sons and daughters for a quarter of that time, but we're still seeing them spread out and multiply across the earth. And this is just one of the, the many family lines, because it does say, and they had other sons and daughters. Um, with Abram, it is it is interesting. I did a little extra reading to try and figure out if he was the firstborn or not um, MacArthur at least thinks that Abram was born around 130 years into Terah's life it says Terah started having sons when he was 70 um, but not specifically that Abram was his firstborn. so that's where the numbers are coming from there um, and why Abram is not 70 years after the birth of Terah um one of, the things that, one of the other things that was interesting as I was going through it is, and Dad, you mentioned this, Abram might have actually come into conflict with Nimrod, who, if you remember from um, chapter 10, was one of the sons of Ham, uh, or grandsons of Ham, the son of Cush. Um, and he was the mighty hunter b- uh, before the Lord, as it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And he's also thought to be the one who founded Babel um, and built the uh, tower there. So Abram and Nimrod would have actually been alive at the same time. Noah also would have been alive for the Tower of Babel. And just two years after Noah dies, Abram's born. So we see again where Adam died and then Noah was born immediately after. Now the next big figure in um, this line Abram is born two years after Noah dies. Very good. Any other? No,
0: I think that's a, it's, it is interesting. The, the way the legend has it that Abram is attacked by Nimrod's army at some point. That's legend. Please understand that's legend. It's not in there. But the fact is, is that you have people such as Nimrod who would have been in those generations that are living for 400 years around for a long, long time and in interacting with some of these other characters. I think we lose track of, of the fact that we look at Scripture as though each one of these characters is living in isolation and they aren't necessarily. They're getting firsthand reports of things like the flood. Um, Abram may have very well had a firsthand report from somebody about the great deluge. So things, things are stacked on with each other a lot more tightly than you'd expect.
1: Is there another slide? There is another slide. There um, we go. Is this for this is this is the family shrub.
0: Why shrub and not a
1: porch? Shrubbery, because I like the word shrub. Is this the <laughs> shrub's a fun word?
0: So so we just yeah, no Monty Python illusions during Sunday school. That's bad. Um, although I kinda yeah. So So what what we do see here, for those of you that can see it, um, we have Terah, Abram's father, and we get to Abram. And then we have Abram's brothers, Nahor and Haran. And again, Abram's probably not the oldest listed first, probably by importance, um, certainly in this. But we see things like Ishmael being born to Hagar, down Hagar's line, and uh, from Abram and Ishmael's descendants end up marrying into Esau's line, one of the reasons Esau was not necessarily thought highly by his parents. Um, But we also see when Abram sends uh, to find a wife for Isaac, he goes back and it's in this line of Nahor that not only uh, Rebekah comes from, but then also we have Rachel coming from that line as well. And that's why we call it a shrub because there's a lot of the branches cross in this particular tree. And so it gets a little confusing because if you remember who's Tara's father, Nahor, also his son. So maybe not totally different than what we do now. There's a decent chance Nahor number one died when Nahor number two died was born, and Nahor, number two, received his grandfather's name. Um, we also see, well, let's, let's look at the text. It'll take us there. Um, in 11, 27 through 23, these are the records. Thank you very much, Ethan. These are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah becomes the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father, Terah. Um, another way to say that is he, he died while Terah was still alive before his time. Died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. So Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah and the daughter uh, the daughter of Haran. And the father of Milcah was Iscah. Sarah was barren and she had no child. So... Lot then, as the son of Haran, if Haran died before his time, Lot being his probable oldest child would have taken the place of Haran in society and in the family to the point where as if the age difference between Haran and Abram was enough and it very well could have been, Lot would have been considered basically a brother to Abram. So we often look, there's this story of, Uh, Abram and Lot going and needing to divide their herds because they have way too much, right? And you guys remember that story where Abram tells Lot, look, here's all the land, which part do you want? And what does Lot choose? Well, yeah, he chooses, no, he chooses the green fluffy grass. Instead of the hills, and it happens that that's where Sodom and Gomorrah are, and uh, that doesn't end well for Lot. But I always thought, well, boy, that was sure nice of Abram to give his nephew the best choice. Well, part of that could also be the fact that Lot may have actually been basically Abram's older brother or held that position, and so they, or at the very least, they were equals. Um, Abram certainly behaves very kindly by not arguing the point. Uh, with Lot, but that relationship that we're about to be introduced to is a little bit different <clears throat> if you look at the fact that Heron has died. Were you going to say something? Oh, okay. Thank you, Susan. Um, so we have... i uh, find myself in my notes here. So we have... Um, if we jump over to Acts, we read through 30. Yes, we did. So jump over to Acts 7, 2 through 4. In Acts 7 is Stephen giving a defense of the gospel and of what he is preaching. And those of you who know your Bibles well know this is not going to end well for Stephen. Stephen. In fact, this is going to be where Paul himself is introduced as Stephen is killed for what he's saying. Well, what did Stephen say that was so terrible? Well, he starts off in verse 2, Hear me, brethren and fathers. Very respectful. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. So we see the call of Abraham mentioned in Acts 7, 2 through 4. And if we turn over to Romans 4, 2 through 5, while you're turning there, Stephen was building a case the, the, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem during the time during and after Christ really held on to what a great guy Abraham was. And he was our father and, you know, he's the best and greatest man that ever lived and everything. And Stephen's starting him there with that picture of who Abraham is and he's going to lead it and he's going to flip it on him and show them how evil they are for the way they've treated Christ and the, the rest of the believers. But Romans 4, 2 through 5, for If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So we see, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, he believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. So we're seeing that Abraham is leaving by faith. And we're going to see other examples of the faith of Abraham as he is called out. But there's this first call that takes place when he's actually in Ur of the Chaldeans. And then Hebrews 11, we see this explanation as well of the faith of of Abraham. We've been in Hebrews 11 a lot as we look back in Genesis and we've been in Romans a lot. I don't think that's an accident. I think they draw a lot of what we learn from those two things, one about faith and the other about salvation it gets drawn from the early stories in Genesis as we've already talked about today. So Hebrews 11:8 by faith Abraham when he was called obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance and he went out not going not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as a foreigner in the land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So we see this faith of Abraham, but specifically we see that God calls Abraham. God says, go, go and do this. But what we know about human beings is how good of a person is Abraham? Is Abram in this case, I guess. What can we assume about Abram? What is great about Abram? He's got a great beard, probably. He's, he's seen what's that? His faith. Okay. And so the faith is the thing that's noticed. But the character of Abram, we're gonna find out. And I, I just want to touch on it before we get here. We're going to find out he, he lies. He's fearful. He doesn't trust that God's going to take care of him. He doesn't trust that God's going to take care of his family. <clears throat> and he tries to connive and, and, and trick people. Again, we've covered that Satan is the father of lies. So Abram is is falling in the line with, with that. Uh, it reminded me as we were covering, some of you have also covered First uh, Samuel in your, in your D groups. And very often we hear about another hero of the faith whose name is David. How good of a guy is David? Some of you are going, no way, he's a bad person. What's bad about David? Listen to me, all the great characteristics of David. Lots of wives. Yeah, he gets married all the, all the time. <laughs> and then he's not content with them. He plays a great harp. He's apparently has great eyes, and he's handsome. He's, yeah, he's kind of pale, complected, red hair, and they make a great statue of him someday. There's the good things about David. What are the bad things about David other than he lies and has a lot of wives? What else is he? He's a murderer, and he murdered somebody so that why? To get another wife, like he didn't have enough that he had adultery with, that he had as a kid with, that God eventually uses to continue this line that we're starting here. <clears throat> yeah, he's a man of war and a man of blood. You don't get to build a temple. That's saved for your son. Who's also, you know, Solomon, there's a, there's a picture of greatness, right? And you think, oh, Solomon is awesome. Um, so we're already getting the picture here that, that, that even the faith of these men is can't be from them, it can't be from their hearts, can it? So we see God commands him to go and he goes. That command to go happens all the time. You know, when we look down at uh, 12 verse 1, go forth from your country, go. Isn't that, uh, we, we uh, again, in First Samuel, this just came to mind because it was fresh, Um, Samuel's all depressed because Saul screwed up and Saul was the one that God told Samuel, go anoint Saul and he did. And Saul turns out to be absolutely horrid. And and God says, how long are you going to worry about this? This is in 1 Samuel 16. How long are you going to worry about Saul? And the next thing he says is, yeah, fill your horn and go. Fill your horn with oil and go. Go do what I tell you. What about um, Jonah? Go. Go now. Well, I'm going to go over there instead. That didn't work out too well. All too often, the command of God is to go. What's the ultimate command to go that we were given? Who gave us the ultimate command to go? What did he say? Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples. Go. And here we have that same thing going on. Go. The end of all time will here come. But for now we go. And that's what Abraham has commanded here. But it doesn't quite work out, does it? Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, the daughter-in-law, the son of Abram's wife. Oh, I should jump back really quick because I skimmed over it. In verse 29, Nahor is married to Milcah, the daughter of Haran. Different Haran, probably, because this Haran is identified as the father of Milcah and Iscah. So probably a Different Heron, not, not on this page. Just, I think that's probably important. Um, the bush gets even crazier. What's that? Well, we tend to reuse names, if we're honest. How many Johns do we have in our family? <laughs> okay. Um, Toby doesn't get used a lot. I'm just saying. I'm not sure why that is. Great name. Okay, um... So there to go went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years and Terah died in Haran. Why are we hearing that somebody's finally died? That should make you think, well, this is bad. Death is not a good thing. In fact, we just went through a whole genealogy and and now we've got a death. Death. Terah didn't make it. Terah started the journey and he didn't make it. Now, it is interesting when Abraham sends his servant, I think in chapter 24, to find a wife for Isaac, this son that took so long for him to get and so long for him to, uh, or I'm sorry, so long for him to get and then is going to offer him up to God on the faith that God can resurrect Isaac from the dead, this son that means so much to him. In Genesis 24, he doesn't want his son to go back and pick a wife. No, don't send my son back there. Don't go to Haran. Don't go where my father gave up this journey and stopped. I don't want him stuck there. When Rebecca, in the same chapter, when they go to get her, and they say, oh, she's the one. Will you send her? Yes, let her stay here 10 days. The servant says, no way, we're going. We are not pausing here. We're not stopping. And they get the heck out of there. Jacob goes back. Anyone know how long Jacob was there in Genesis 31? How long did Jacob have to work for his wife? Seven for the one that wasn't the one. And then how long? Another seven. Seven. And then how long? He stayed like another six years. He was there 20 years. So any of you that have a couple daughters, you should be able to get at least 14, 20 years out of some guy that wants to marry one of your kids. Just saying, that's the standard. It's like, oh my gosh. But he ends up stuck there. He's not where he's supposed to be. He spends 20 years in this same land. We'll see another example of... Lot's wife, as they're running away, stops to look back at the destruction. What happens to her? Pillar of salt. I think this is fairly important because as you read through Exodus, the next book, one of the big problems with the people of Israel is they don't even make it really, they're in the middle of running away and they turn to Moses and say, God brought us out to the desert to kill us. We should have stayed in Egypt. We should go back. God told us to go. We should, we should, no, let's not go. We need to go back. And then they spend, you know, the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness saying, yeah, you remember how great the food was there? God says, oh, I'm going to give you plenty of meat to eat. If that's the issue, here's a whole bunch of meat. In fact, within a month, you're going to be sick of it. Those people continually look back they're not interested in going. Kind of summarized in Isaiah 31, 1 through 3. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses. This is referring to the people of the Israel, not only on their way out, but once they were out, they continued. Once they were a nation and were established and had their own kings and the kingly line was going along, once there was pressure from the outside world, from, the, the, um, from Syria, Assyria, and from Babylon... They kept on looking back to Egypt for help. They kept on thinking, if we, can get a, if we can get some sort of a treaty with Egypt, they'll protect us and we'll be okay. Not counting on the one who is ultimately their king to, to defend them. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Yet he too is wise and can bring disaster. He does not take back his words. He will rise up against the wicked nation, against those who help evildoers. But the Egyptians are mere mortals and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, those who help will stumble. Those who are helped will fall. All will perish together. So this whole idea of that Moses, we just to bring you back to the context of what this is written for, and this is written by Moses to the people of Israel before they enter the promised land, and they would have been all too clear on on this fact when it says that they stopped, they went as far as Haran and settled there, the people would have known they aren't doing what God told them to do, they're stopping before they get to their final destination. We just spent 40 years wandering around. We did the same thing. And the days of terror were 205 years and terror died in Heron, and, and the people of Israel would have immediately thought of the whole generation that died in the desert because of their lack of faith in God, because they didn't complete the tasks that God gave them. Does God give you tasks? Does God command you, not just in generalities, but does, do you know the things that God has planned for you? Most of the time it comes to the simple fact that you should just listen to what God clearly says. There's a whole book here on what you're supposed to do. And a lot of it is actual instructions. Children, obey your parents. Actual instruction, very simple. Boy, I wonder what God wants me to do in this situation. He gave you a book, read it. Chances are it's covered. And now we're seeing Terah and Abram commanded to go and they don't go. In Luke 9, 57 through 62, Christ speaking, as they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. And we we know from the rest of the gospels that when Jesus speaks to somebody in such a way he knows exactly what's in their heart and he is pulling on the strings that that person has that's going to keep them from following the Son of Man. So you could could know, you can assume that this person is not comfortable with the idea that they will lose all of their earthly possessions if they follow the Son of Man and Jesus is pointing it out to them. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Assumption here is that the father is not yet dead. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead. But you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Still another said, I will follow you, Lord. But first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts a hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service of the kingdom of of God. What happens if you put your hand to the plow and you look back the other way? I have farmers in here who plow things. What happens? Crooked lines. lines. You know, I was talking to the the superintendent at the um, Sandhills course out in Mullen, and... uh, I got to go there once. And it was an amazing experience. The course crushed me. Those of you who golf, I couldn't play the last hole and a half. I was just, it was devastating. And, I was, and at the time I was like a bogey golfer and I was just like, this thing has just beat the snot out of me. I've, I don't know that I have any, but some junk range balls left in my bag. They're all gone. Um, but I took some really nice pictures of the last two holes. <clears throat> so talking to the guy is like, He's like, yeah, it's been great um, because we're a little bit worried about finding people who could mow our fairways and our greens and everything. But it says, it turns out farmers are really good at it. He said, we have never had any issues with cutting a straight line because they pick a point off in the distance and they can just nail it every single time because they keep their eye straight ahead. And that's what we're seeing here is that the one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is not fit for the service of the kingdom of God. God calls you to follow him and do what he says. Here we have Abram being called. He goes and he and his father end up stopping. They exercise faith in going, but on their way, they didn't complete the task. And he dies and we see death again brought up. All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for Genesis. We thank you for the even the introduction of this character, Abram, and we thank you that he is not at all a perfect man. He is not somebody that we should hold up and say, hey, kids, be like him. Because we ourselves can see our our own failures in Abram. We can see our own challenges in these men of Scripture that that you even in Scripture hold up as great men of faith. Lord, we see that faith can't come from us, knowing what we now know about men, and that must be from you, and therefore we must... Uh, just fall upon you for your graciousness and and pray uh, for your mercy. And that's, that's a good and comforting place to be, Lord, to be totally subjected to the grace of the God of the universe who made everything. And we thank you for that, Lord. It's in your Son's name we pray these things. Amen.